He is risen. How we need to constantly be reminded of this truth. And I've needed to be reminded of it even more this year than most. Last week, instead of being here with you for Good Friday and Easter, remembering the death and resurrection of Christ with you, I was down in Texas planning and participating in a memorial service to remember the life and mourn the death of my mom. It was three and a half weeks ago that I rushed down there after my mom had grown critically ill with a mix of severe breathing problems, heart failure, a blood infection on top of it all. And I was so afraid on the flight down there. I had no idea what to expect when I arrived. Would I even get to see her again? My brother flew down as well. And the next few days, we sat by her side and watched her body slowly recover. The infection subsided, her heart stabilized, and the hospital staff began working toward taking her off the breathing tube that was in her throat. But then the next week, a number of things began to happen that were showing a turn for the worse. The next week on Monday, she had a heart attack. On Tuesday, she developed some kind of strange psychosomatic symptoms. On Wednesday, her heart rate and blood pressure destabilized. And it was at this point that we began to fear the worst again. And that evening, Wednesday night, folks from the church I grew up at, my my mom's church, came and filled up her hospital room way past the three-person limit and filled it with song and prayer. And though she was asleep, the songs sounded around her. And then later that night, Caitlin arrived up there as well. And the next day, her... Heart rate and blood pressure seemed to have stabilized, were, were fine. She had rested peacefully through the night. And so they took her off sedation so she could wake up and begin trying to maybe work off that breathing machine that she was on. And when she did start to wake up, we all got to spend a little bit of time with her and see her smile. It was a really, really sweet day. There's only one concern left. She was still on that breathing machine, and she was getting closer and closer to the time whenever they really either needed to take her off or transition to a trach straight into her throat. And by that afternoon, she was awake enough for one of the doctors to explain this to her and explain the risks of coming off of that machine. But she chose to go ahead and come off of it. And so they prepared to take her off, and we were all with her as they removed the tube. And we were all so hopeful because we had seen her body so strong all throughout this whole process. And shortly after coming off of that tube, she fell asleep and began to rest. 
And I stayed with her all night that night. I was talking to her as she slept, praying over her, and watching carefully all of the vitals on the monitor, checking with the nurse anytime something remotely fluctuated a little bit. And she made it through that night into the morning. It was Friday morning, and we were all so hopeful that she just might recover. But when the doctors began to make their rounds that morning, they saw the way that she was breathing, and they told us, that's not normal breathing. And they told us that even though most of her vitals were okay, most likely later in the day, her breathing would stop. And so that news hit us heavily, and we all gathered around her once more and began to say potential goodbyes. My brother and I prayed and cried and whispered into her ears. And then we were surrounded by some other friends and family who were there, who also prayed and spoke blessings. And finally, shortly after noon, that Friday, her breathing stopped. So the next few days were filled with the heaviness of grief, trying to eat, but feeling too sick for that, trying to sleep, but feeling far too restless for that, and replaying every single moment of regret and not being able to change anything. And then there were all of the details that we had to start taking care of, right? Funeral plans, memorial plans, getting the estate in order. And Saturday was a mix of the busyness of all those logistics and still the heaviness of that grief. And then on Sunday, Caitlin and I went to worship at my mom's church. And they announced her death. They honored her throughout the service. And in the midst of all of those songs and scriptures that we shared together, that's when I first began to feel any ray of hope. One of the scripture readings at church that Sunday was from the middle of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Jesus will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. And with these words from Scripture, I began to think not only of my regrets or what I missed, and finally began looking forward to the day when death will finally be destroyed. And I will get to see her again, and we will all be with God. So it's good for us to be reminded that he is risen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, As you're turning there, I want to simply say thank you to all of you. Thank you to the elders for being gracious and letting me rush down to Texas 
when my mom was ill. Thanks to Jimmy for jumping in and filling up in here. And thanks to all of you for your prayers, your kind words, a handful of cards in our mailbox when we got back home, and all the comfort that you've offered. I'm really grateful for all of you and to be part of this church family. I've missed you, and I'm glad to be back. So as you arrive at 1 Corinthians 15, I'll let you know that I was actually already planning to preach this text today. Uh, You can ask the elders. I talked to them. I said, I think after Easter, we'll probably go 1 Corinthians 15 for a few weeks, and well, here we are. Because you see, Easter, like Lent or Advent or Christmas, is not just a day. Easter is actually a whole season. Lent lasts 40 days, but Easter lasts 50. Lent has six Sundays in it, but Easter has seven. And all of this goes to show that the life that Easter brings is greater than the death that Lent reminded us of. You are from dust, and to dust you shall return. But he is risen. And so we shall be raised as well. So let's read this text. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me, it has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news that we remember and that we proclaim. I ask that as we reflect on these words, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So the story that Christians all over the world told last week is the central story of our faith. On Friday, people across the world remembered that Jesus Christ died and was buried. On Saturday, we waited in silence, mourning, and grief. And then on Sunday, we proclaimed that he was raised and appeared to his disciples. This event has transformed the history of the world. And it transforms all of our grief into hope. This story is the reason why my mom's memorial service last week or Francis's potluck next week are not just sentimental events, but rather events of true hope. When we remember and celebrate life, even in the face of death, we do so because we know that death is not the end. Death is not the end because Christ has risen. This is the gospel, and it's the good news. And Paul makes it clear that this story is central. In verse 3 of our text, he says, I handed this to you as of first importance. This story is the essence of our faith and the hope of the world. So I want to take a closer look at all that Paul writes about here in our text. We're going to take it in three sections. Okay, verses 1 and 2 tell us about the goodness of this gospel. Verses 3 through 7 tell us about the story of the gospel. And then verses 8 through 11 tell us about the grace of the gospel. So let's look back at verse 1, where Paul writes, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you received, in which you stand, and through which you are being saved. In these opening verses, Paul lavishly layers on the goodness and wonder of the gospel. But that goodness isn't always obvious. It's something he says we need to be reminded of. Now, you would think that if this news were truly good, that we would latch hold of it, we would remember it, and probably we would tell everyone we come into contact with about it. So why do we need to be reminded? Well, all kinds of things around us every single day are screaming at us to forget. We lose loved ones to death. We have conflicts with friends. We see chaos in the news. Or we just feel alone and depressed. So it goes on and on. It's almost as though there is some kind of active force trying to convince us that the good news isn't true. But here, in this text, Paul layers on just how good and just how true it is. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of this good news. 
that I proclaim to you, which you received, in which you stand, and through which you are being saved. Look at how he describes it here. He says that this news is good enough to receive, strong enough to stand on, and spacious enough to grow in. And unfortunately for many of us, what we've heard in churches growing up may not have seemed like good news that we wanted to receive, but instead bad news that was forced upon us. Anyone ever had that experience? Sometimes it didn't feel like something strong enough to stand on, because when we went to the minister, the preacher, the people in charge, with our doubts and our questions, we were told simply to believe and to stop asking questions. And it certainly hasn't always felt spacious enough to grow in. Because for many, it's felt a bit more like a straitjacket of religious rules to conform to. But none of that is how Paul describes it. He says the gospel is good enough to receive, strong enough to stand on, and spacious enough to grow in. It is so good that our hearts long to receive it. It's so strong that we can bring all of our doubts and fears and questions and grief before it and find a firm foundation to stand on, even when everything else around us is sinking and giving away. And it is spacious enough to invite our growth. Do you see that? In verse 2, Paul says, through this gospel, we are being saved. It is not once and done. It's not a straitjacket to keep us in place. Rather, it is an active process of growth and transformation. This gospel is good enough to receive, strong enough to stand on, and spacious enough to grow in. So what is this good, strong, and spacious gospel? Well, it's a story. And that's the story that Paul tells in verses 3 through 7. He writes, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I had in turn received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, to more than five hundred, to James, and to all the apostles. And so let me say just a few things about this story of the gospel. And they all build upon one another. So first, it is a story. Second, it's a true story. And third, it is the true story. Let me tell you what I mean by all of this. First, the gospel is a story. Stories by their very nature are complex things. In order to be a story, it has to have more than one part, more than one movement. Like with music, a song needs more than one note. 
Otherwise, it would just be a note. A story has to have more than one part. And the way that Paul tells it here, the gospel is a story with multiple parts. Christ died and Christ was raised. These multiple parts to the gospel story are one of the reasons why it is spacious enough to grow in. You see, the complex, multi-part story of the gospel is big enough to encompass both the grief of death and the hope of life. That means that whenever we're in a dark place filled with fear and doubt, we are still firmly in the midst of the story of the gospel. And it also means that when we're in a bright place filled with joy and hope, we are also firmly in the midst of that same gospel story. The gospel is a story that is big enough for all of our experience, and it invites us to bring all of ourselves into it. And so it is a story, but it is a true story. You see, Paul doesn't only say that Jesus died and was raised, but that he died and was buried, and that he raised and he appeared. Why is that important? Well, Jesus' death was not figurative, and it wasn't, you know, partial or a little bit. He truly died. And they took him down off the cross, they wrapped him in grave clothes, and they buried him in a tomb. Jesus really did die. I think that's one way in which Francis and my mom are even more like Christ now than they were. They've experienced death just like he did. But the story goes on. Jesus was raised, and he appeared to many people. You see, his death was not figurative, and neither is his resurrection. It's not just a spiritual reality. Jesus really was raised, and people really did see him. And according to Paul, it's not a few people. It's upwards of 500 people. Paul's like, if you don't trust me, go ahead and ask around. Someone around saw him. They'll tell you about it, right? His appearance was not just spiritual, not just some kind of apparition, but a real and true bodily appearance. So it's a story, and it's a true story. But I think it is also the true story. What I mean by that is that while the gospel is a true story that happened at some point in history, it is also the true story that has been happening all throughout history. 
And I think that's what Paul means when he says, in accordance with the scriptures, multiple times. He's saying that this gospel is not only on whatever page 1 Corinthians 15 happens to be on in your Bible. For mine, it's page 932, right? And it's not only on the pages of the New Testament. The gospel story is on every single page of the Bible from beginning to end. And I believe that this gospel story is also on every page of history, from the very beginning to this very day. It is the true story. Christ died and was buried. He was raised and he appeared. And he continues to appear to us today. And the songs and the scriptures as we gather, and the bread and the cup at the table, and in our day-to-day lives, as we live and grieve and rejoice and experience all the contours of life and death. The gospel is the true story of the world, and it comes to us. And in the final verses of this passage, Paul describes what it was like when this gospel story came to him. And he describes it as an experience of grace. Look at verse 8 through 11. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. Unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. So far throughout this passage... We've been marveling at the good, strong, spacious, and true story of the gospel. And after all of this goodness, we might just begin to think that such a story is too good for the likes of us. And we can either shrink back in shame or try to work all the more to earn it. But if we respond with either shame or pride, then we've missed the point. Because Paul has every reason to be ashamed. And Paul also has every reason to be pretty proud. But the point of the story is grace. In verse 8 and 9, Paul talks about his shame. He says that he is like one untimely born, the least of the apostles, unfit to even be called an apostle. And all of this because he persecuted the church of God. Now, this phrase, one untimely born, is a really shocking term in the Greek that's been made a little bit prettier for our Bibles. It's very similar to our word for abortion, or our word for stillbirth. 
Perhaps in this context, it refers more to something like induced labor or a C-section. You see, as Paul reflects on the many appearings of Christ, all of the other disciples and apostles were born on time, so to speak. They all experienced Jesus in the days after his resurrection, before his ascension. But while they were busy becoming the church, Paul was busy persecuting the church. And it took a wild encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus for Paul to finally be born, much later than any of the others. For Paul, it took some induced labor, so to speak. And for this, Paul has every reason to shrink back in shame. And yet he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then in the rest of verse 10, Paul could easily slip into pride, right? He says, or or he could very well say, I was late to the game, but I've played the game harder than everyone else. You know, and now I'm an awesome missionary and the letters I'm writing actually become the Bible, right? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But even though he could have claimed this, even though he does say that he worked harder than any of them, he insists that it's not him, but it's the grace of God with him. Early church father Augustine reflected on this and concluded that Paul did not work in order to receive grace, but rather he received grace so that he might work. The gospel should not move us towards shame or pride, but rather its grace should stir us in both confidence and humility. Confidence to passionately serve God and humility to praise God. That's why Paul concludes in verse 11 by saying that he doesn't care whether it's him or others who have proclaimed this good, strong, spacious, true story of the gospel. He only cares that it is proclaimed and that it is believed. So what are all of the implications of this story for us? How does it actually make any difference for us? Well, that's the next part of the chapter, and that'll be next week. But for now, my encouragement to you is to receive this good news. Stand on it. Rest in it. And remind yourself of this truth. He is risen. risen. Amen.